How are you guys today? There we go. Uh, my name is Will Vakurvich. I'm one of the pastoral residents here. Uh, my wife and I also lead our high school ministry here at Redemption Tempe. Um, thank you, the high school students are sitting towards the front for us for me this morning, and I appreciate that. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, I'm excited for this opportunity to share with you uh, from God's Word. Um, some of you may, have, may be familiar with this passage. And, and for some of you, this may be the first time. For me, I heard this passage in youth group all growing up, and it was normally bring your friends to Jesus. But I think today uh, we're going to try to approach it with some, some new, uh, a new lens uh, in a new light. And so um, would you guys join me in Mark chapter 2? If you guys don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise up your hand and the ushers will come forward. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, this is our gift to you. Feel free to keep it. Hang on to it. We believe that everyone should have the written word of God. Um, and if you do, then you can go ahead and return it to us uh, in the back when the service is over. As you guys heard, we'll be in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And today we're going to be talking about, really about love, and about this concept of how love makes us do crazy things, right? You guys, you guys already heard, you know where we're going, you heard about these four men who carry their friend. Um, we know that love makes us do things that are strange, right? Think about puppy love. Think about staying up all night on the phone just to hear their sweet voice. I just wanna hear you breathe, right? These silly things that we do when we're young. Think about um, the bonds that are formed with a team, right? Working, practicing, playing together, um, working hard together, right? We have these strong bonds and we'll see teams do things together, shave their heads together or teams will get tattoos together or all of these things. They're motivated by these bonds of love, right? I, I think about when um, I was dating and engaged to my wife and she lived 45 minutes away from me and I was so in love, I would drive those 45 minutes just to bring her flowers, because she had a hard day. You know, all this stuff we don't do anymore, right? Because we have to pay our gas bills and things like that, but love can motivate us. And I thought that I had a firm grasp on this. And then I had kids. And you parents already know what I'm going to say. You will do things for your kids that are crazy. Kids put us through things that we never thought we would experience. Uh, I remember, oh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to age myself here. I remember the comedian Sinbad when I was growing up. Okay, all right, some of you guys are with me. So I remember Sinbad talking about, your parents used to be cool until you came along. I was like, my parents, no way my parents were cool, right? And now I'm the parent, and now I'm not cool anymore. And so I was thinking through some of the things that I've done for my kids. And this is um, by no means an exhaustive list. This is just some of the things. We vacation differently, right? We can't go to the same spots. We have to go to kid-friendly things. We eat at different restaurants because they have to be kid-friendly, right? Um, we, um, they dominate our Instagram accounts. All, almost all of my pictures on Instagram are of my kids. I have changed diapers at every hour of the day. Middle of the night, middle of the day, early morning, doesn't matter, right? We do these things for our kids. I have had all types of disgusting experiences of things that my kids have projectiled onto me 
right? And we do it. We do it for our kids. We unclog toilets. We bandage cuts. We um, watch the same shows over and over and over for a year straight. My son wanted me to sing Let It Go for him every night. And so I sing this song over and over. We do these things. We make up voices, right? Voices for the characters and stories. And you have the car, the and then the train, right? We do all of these things for our kids. And we don't think twice about it because we love them. Well, sometimes Aaron and I look at each other and we're like, really, did this just happen? Like he really just wiped a booger on me? Is this real life? You know? But we do these things and we're okay with it. We're okay with that sacrifice. We're okay with looking awkward or goofy as I pick my son up and fly him around the parking lot like an airplane. Or as I pick my son up and drag him screaming and kicking out of Target because he's having a meltdown because I won't buy him another Thomas the Train, right? We do these things, we're motivated by love. So we have the example in this story of four friends who are motivated by love. They're motivated to serve sacrificially. They're not so much concerned what other people may think or perceive about them. They're motivated by love. Let's dive into the text. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So Mark's setting the stage here, right? We know that this story is taking place in Capernaum. Um, Historically, Capernaum was a small fishing village. Around 1,000 people lived there. Uh, But it wasn't only fishermen. There were also farmers, um, merchants. There was a a well-traveled road, trade road that ran through Capernaum. And so people would provide goods and services to the travelers. Um, And it says that that he was at home. Now, historians would suggest that Jesus wasn't actually at his house. He was at Peter's house. Uh, Last week, Ricardo shared that Peter had healed Uh, that Jesus, sorry, had healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Uh, And so this was kind of Jesus' headquarters, home base, while he was in the region. So that's where Jesus is. We learn in verse 2 that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So there's a large crowd, right? Word had started to get out. Jesus heals people. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus um, preaches the truth in a way that people had never heard or experienced before. And so just like we have things that are trending on the internet and on social media, at the time, Jesus is now trending. And and word had leaked out that he's at Peter's house. And so think about it. When I think about this, I think of, okay, Jesus is teaching, large room full of people. This is not the case. This is word had leaked out that Jesus was going to be in a small room. Think like your favorite musician in a small, intimate venue. People are flocking to get there. They want this close encounter with Jesus. They want to be near him because so far in his ministry, the people that have been near Jesus have changed. They've been healed. The leopard has been made clean. The the person who's possessed with demons has been um, set free from that. Things are happening around Jesus, and so people are pushing their way in. It's standing room only. It's packed. There's so many people that the crowd is starting to spill outside of the door, but the word is still spreading. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. What's he going to do next? What's the next amazing thing that we're going to see? And word reaches these four friends, and these four friends immediately think of the paralytic, This man, who's a familiar part of their community, right? It's a small town. 
Most likely people have seen him. They've noticed him lying on his mat. Some may walk past him and not even notice. Some may offer him money, food, care, compassion. But this man is still in this state. It says that he's lying on his bed. And don't think so much like number, pillow top, nice bed. This is closer to a pallet or a mat. And so the four men pick him up because they know he has a need. And they know that Jesus is here. And when Jesus is here, things change. So they're moved in their spirit. They start carrying this man towards Jesus. Some of us can relate to this. Some of us sit in church week after week and we experience the love of God. We see God's beauty in creation. We feel God throughout our weeks and our hearts are heavy and burdened for those family members. Those friends that we've known for years that don't yet know Jesus. We know what it's like to long for someone to get to meet Jesus. To be near him. To experience how much he can change things. And we pray and we talk, and we invite, and we pursue because we want those people to know Jesus. We want them to have the opportunity to be close to him. That's what these friends are doing. Some of us are here today because friends have drug us to church, willingly or unwillingly. All of us are here because somebody took the time to share with us. There's a relational component to our faith. It must be lived out in community. It cannot be lived out in isolation. And so these men are sacrificing their time, their energy, to take the paralytic to Jesus. Now, for the time period, houses were constructed um, not very large. We know that the room was packed. We know that the crowd is spilling out. And the roofs were made with long cross beams. And then in the other direction were laid smaller pieces of wood and branches, and on top of that, it would be packed down with mud. And this wasn't so much a roof in the way that we think of a roof in Arizona where we would never go up there, especially in the summer. Uh, This roof was actually another floor to the house, and people would dry laundry, people would eat meals, people would hang out on the roof. It was a common place of prayer for the early church. And so most houses were constructed with an exterior staircase leading up to the roof. Now, for any of us who have ever moved, especially somebody from upstairs, downstairs, we know logistically this can be problematic. I I remember um, early on, I was dating Erin. She had to move. She called all her friends. We're going to move Erin's stuff. And I show up early in the morning like a good boyfriend, and no one else shows up. Erin lived on the third floor. It's the summertime. Not Arizona summer but Sacramento summer. And if any of you have been to Sacramento, you know that it gets hot there as well, right? This isn't the only hot place on earth. And so my wife, girlfriend at the time, who's very, very small, and I get to navigate her couch, her bed, all of these large pieces of furniture down this stairwell, and not like a nice stairwell, right? Like one of these, you know, you go, and then you got to turn around, and then you go again, and you got to turn around, right? And it's a nightmare. We know what it's like to move. So now we imagine, instead of moving couches or beds or other bulky items, these four guys are moving their friend, a a, a human being who's already experiencing paralysis, who's already in need. They They see the staircase, and they don't give up. 
don't think it's not worth it. They carry their friend up the stairs because they know that's going to get them closer to Jesus. And Jesus changes things. They're motivated by their love for their friend who's in need, and they carry him up the staircase. This man that other people have overlooked, walked past, ignored, they're taking the time to carry him to Jesus. They get him up on top of the roof, and they realize that that's not close enough. So they begin to dig. They begin to break through the layer of mud. They begin to move the wood and the sticks aside so that there is a clear pathway to Jesus. Now pause right there and let's consider what's happening underneath the roof, right? Standing room only. People are packed to hear Jesus teach. And I picture Jesus, he's in the middle of the sermon, he's got the groove, he's going with it, right? And now there's an interruption. And now there's a distraction. We've all experienced this, right? We've, we've been somewhere, we've been listening, and somebody's cell phone goes off. And it's always the person who doesn't know how to silence their cell phone, right? And then it keeps going, and you get to hear whatever ridiculous song they've selected go on and on and on, and everyone starts looking, right? As a culture, we hate distractions. We hate interruptions. And typically, we don't respond with the most patience when this occurs, right? And so the crowd is watching, it, watching Jesus. They're listening to Jesus, and, and all of a sudden, some dust starts to come down. And what is that? And then some clumps of dirt, and then light begins to break through. This is a huge distraction. A hole opens up, and everyone can see four faces peering down the hole. What in the world is going on? I think about what would happen here today if this scene were to play out. And the crowd waits, and they watch Jesus because Jesus is being interrupted. Jesus is being distracted in the midst of him preaching the truth, which, as Ricardo described last week, that is why he was sent. That is what he came to do, was to proclaim the truth. This man is lowered down, and Jesus looks at him, and he speaks. And I wonder what the crowd expects him to say. Like, dude, seriously? You're going to interrupt me right now? I'm in the middle of something here. But that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus responds in a very interesting way. We can pick it up in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son. In other translations, he says child. Let's consider this. Up until this point in the story, this man is referred to as the paralytic. In other stories about Jesus, the characters are named, right? We have Nicodemus, we have Pilate, we have all of these other people, and we know their names. In this story, this man is identified by his brokenness. This man is identified by his sickness, by what's wrong with him. He isn't given the honor of a name. But Jesus looks through that brokenness. Jesus can see through the pain. And he sees the heart of the man. He sees the reality of who this man is. He's a child of God. He's a fellow image bearer of the creator. He is 
He is one of the people for which Jesus was sent. He understands the worth in this man. And Jesus calls him son. I imagine for that man, that would mean the world. This man who has relied on others. This man who has relied on someone else who possibly has felt like a burden. Jesus sees who he is. He sees past everything else and he speaks to him in an intimate way with affection and compassion and he calls him son. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. And for those of us who are around church a lot, we know this, right? God forgives sins and we gloss over it. It's easy. We sing about it every week. We hear about it when we read. We pray about it. Yeah, God forgives sins. And it's easy to become very common. I think when we really pause here, we can start to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. His sins are forgiven. The past that he holds on to, the mistakes that we have all lived and wish we could go back to to change, the fears that we all have, the, for me, the voices as I walk up the stairs to consider I am going to preach to you guys. The voices that say there's somebody else who's more qualified. There's somebody else who doesn't still struggle with whatever it is. Those voices are silenced. The weight that we all feel, we know things are not the way that they should be. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is good news. This is very good news because we don't have to carry those weights anymore. There's a reaction in the crowd here. The scribes, who are the religious authorities, men who have devoted their lives to studying the law, begin to get uncomfortable. Their their feathers are ruffled, right? In in verse 7, they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the deal. They're right. This is the appropriate response. If I stood up here and told you guys, look, come to me, I'll forgive your sins, Ricardo would probably like run on stage and tackle me and drag me off because that would be a lie. That's not true. But there's something that's implied in this. Because this this original Jewish audience knew only God can forgive sins. So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is implying that he's God. For, For the text to say that Jesus knew what was in their hearts, knew what they were thinking, that's an attribute that is only ascribed to God throughout Scripture. Jesus is making some some pretty big claims here. There's another way that Jesus is implying that he's God. Jesus is speaking the forgiveness of sins into being. This should remind us of in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of creation, as God is speaking creation into reality. We can't do that. 
Even with Siri, we can't just speak and have something happen or appear. We rely on already created goods or materials, right? So I can't just say house and a house will be. I have to use like wood and nails and whatever else comes in a house, right? But God does that. God can do that. And Jesus is exercising that authority here by speaking the truth that this man's sins are forgiven into reality. And it happens. And so Jesus confronts the scribes. He says uh, in verse 8, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I tell you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus confronts their assumptions head on. He says, yeah, it may be easy to say your sins are forgiven, but watch this. And he heals the man. He heals the man in a time before medical doctors and surgeons and CAT scans and MRIs and all of the technology that we have now, even essential oils. Jesus heals the man by speaking this truth into reality. Jesus is concerned not only with the man's spiritual need, but with his physical need as well. You heard Ricardo say, and if you've been around for any length of time, you've heard it many times, that all of life is all for Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus, holistically. That God isn't only concerned with saving souls, but God is also concerned with redeeming the totality of creation. God is concerned with common good things like making sure that schools are effective and that um, communities are running the way that they should be and that people are being cared for, all of, these, all of these things, the whole scope of life. So Jesus knew that this man needed salvation. His sins needed to be forgiven. But he also knew that there was a physical component. and He addresses that as well. Now again, I think of the audience. I think of the small town. I think of everyone knowing this paralytic for years and years and years since he was a child. In popular Jewish thought, there was a strong connection between sin and illness. So there would be those undercurrents of, what did this guy do to get paralyzed? What did he do to make God angry to punish him in this way? What did his family do? They must have parented him poorly. And the community sees him stand up. The community sees him take steps under his own power. The community sees him pick up this mat that he has laid on and carry it home. There's a change. There's a drastic change. There's a life-altering change, not just for the man, but for the entire community. This is a miracle. I don't want to lose sight of that. It's easy for us to pass over stories and not really understand what's going on, right? This week, there was a video um, on Facebook that showed people who were deaf 
hearing for the first time through medical treatments, and you can see their face, and there's joy, and there's tears, and they feel overwhelmed, and everyone else in the room is rejoicing. There is a great change. This is good news. And that's what happens here. Not only does Jesus forgive sins, but Jesus heals the physical brokenness that this man has experienced, and the community is altered. When we have these life-changing encounters with Jesus, we can't help but be changed. We can't help but behave differently when we see that Jesus is not only concerned with my spiritual well-being, but with my physical well-being, then all of my life is changed. And when all of my life is changed, the people around me take notice. They notice that I'm not doing the same things that I was once doing. They notice that there's a change. They can't help but notice. Just like the crowd here, can't help but notice. They say, um, he rose, in verse 11, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I've never seen anything like that. This is big stuff. The crowd has a response. And some people see this miraculous work that Jesus has accomplished, and they are drawn to him. But we know later in the story that not everyone is drawn to Jesus because of these miracles. Not everyone is motivated to follow God because of these great things that Jesus has done. There are other responses to this good news. And I think the same is true in our time. We see God move. We have an experience with Christ, and some of us are drawn towards him. And others, we step back. Some of us in the church step back. I know that God could forgive these sins, but this one thing, I don't know about that one. This one secret thing that I would just die if my mom found out, or my grandma found out, or my spouse found out. This one thing that I work so hard to keep buried, this one thing that always pops up in the back of my mind, a lot of times we don't trust Jesus with that. He's good enough and strong enough and powerful enough to forgive the little sins, but really, those demons that pop up in the middle of the night when we can't sleep, those things that weigh us down, I wonder, do we trust Jesus' words in those moments? He heals this man. Jesus says that he heals this man so that they know he has authority to forgive sins. And he does. You see, we have the love of the friends that carry this man to Jesus. But we can also see the love of the Father in this story. I told you a small list of some of the things that I would do for my sons. I'll tell you what I will not do. I will not offer up my son for someone else. I'll do some pretty crazy things, but that's too far. Thankfully, the love of the Father extends even beyond that. The love of the Father sent his son for us, for our sins, for our spiritual and physical brokenness. The love of the Father sent his son Jesus to be mocked, to be humiliated, to be crucified, 
to bear the sins of the world, past, present, and future, on our behalf. Love motivated these men to do a wild thing. But that's nothing compared to the love of the Father for us. The love of the Father sent his Son to die on our behalf so that we may know that the Son has authority to forgive our sins, so that we may know without question that the Son has authority to restore the brokenness that we all experience daily in our personal lives, as we interact in our communities, as we go to work, we have this sense that things are not the way that they should be, and the Father sent his Son to make that right. So here's the question. How do we respond? Do we respond like the scribes and say, nope, not me, not this thing, not this insecurity that I can never let go of, not this brokenness that has become my identity? Or do we follow in the footsteps of the paralytic? Do we trust Jesus? Do we pick up our mat, walk home, and leave the crowd amazed? Will you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Thank you for loving us in unexpected, sacrificial, out-of-the-ordinary ways. Thank you for healing our brokenness. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for coming so that you could restore things back to the way things should be. Thank you that one day there will be full restoration and we will no longer feel the weight of not the way it should be. More than anything, Lord, we thank you for loving us. Help us to understand your love better. Help us to live out your love better. We pray these things in your name. Amen.